This is Chris Damien, and you're listening to the third part of my recorded conversation with Danny Peterson. In this part, we discuss his experience as a closeted priest on Grinder, how certain presentations of Catholic theology contribute to addictive cycles, angers and fears towards the church, getting clarity from a seven-foot crucifix in the back of his car, his advice for closeted priests who may be struggling with chastity, and how he uses the beautiful and empowering things he learned in the seminary and priesthood to serve others today. Please note that this conversation includes adult language and themes and may not be suitable for young children. Yeah, so so let's go back a little bit. And, and if you're open to it, I, I'd be really curious to kind of just unpack um, the role that kind of the apps played in your sure. life as a priest, you know, how, how did you get into that? What role did it play in your life? What role did it play in your decision to, that you needed to make changes? Cause obviously there's, there's one trajectory in your life where you do what everyone else wants you to do, which is yes. put on the happy face, keep doing this thing, which involves keep doing all the secrets um, right. as long as no right. one knows about it. Right. And, and just kind of not just knuckle white knuckle through this Mm -hmm. stuff and just keep being happy priest. Yep. So I will say before ordination, I was sexually active. I'm going to go old school and go and say on Craigslist, um, right before third theology, before my deacon year, I had two sexual experiences on Craigslist with strangers. Um, in my in in my mindset at the time was I want to experience this to get it out of the way because I had never been intimate with the guy so it, the idea was let me experience this get it off my bucket list and then I can be at peace and then my deacon year while I was a deacon I think I think once or twice I probably experimented and it was probably in a, on a summer the church quiets down in the summer like everyone it was probably in the summer evening and I was bored and lonely and I just was like just just this once and you could hear some of the addictive patterns in that right but and then when I was ordained a priest, I was like, never, you know, these consecrated hands will never, never touch anything, anyone sexually. And within like, honestly, within like three or four months, I had my first sexual experience. At that point, I switched to Grinder. And Grinder, in my experience, I won't speak for everyone, but in my experience, Grinder is a place that kind of enables a lot of um, vice and a lot of um, people are lying about who they are. Photos are sent that are misleading, photoshopped. Um, some people are aggressive. You're not aware of like cleanliness or uh, sexual health. And in my experience, Grindr is a place that just kind of tends to allow, I'm going to put it this way, unsafe situations, you know, so it's it's considered high risk. Grindr is probably high risk. We're not talking about a match.com type situation where you're getting to know people and, oh, I'm a nurse and you're a doctor and I'm a, this is like clandestine sometimes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, a dark place. I mean, I often tell people that, yeah, I the place where I've experienced the most over direct racism in my life is is on Grinder. Yeah, 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 and yeah, and it's still sketchy. And I'm, so I got on Grinder, and um, I would New York City was close enough where I would go there, uh, but then again, I was so paranoid that I wouldn't show my face. So um, you know, it's a D, what they call DL download situation, and um, you know, I'm nervous, I'm anxious. I can't guarantee cleanliness with the other person. There's also, I'm just so nervous. And I remember one guy asked me, well, what do you do? He was just being polite. He didn't give a shit. He just was being polite. And I just was like, uh, 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 I'm in sales. And he's like, okay, you don't have to tell me if you don't want, like he knew I was lying, but just so nervous, you know? And I would come back late. And sometimes my pastor would be like, you were out late. Cause normally I would be in bed by 10 or 11. And sometimes I'd come back at one 
and he wasn't being nosy. He just was kind of like, yeah, I just heard you come in late. And I was like, yeah, just watching a movie, you know, what I started doing, I started lying to people that I love. And then I never lied to like my parents or my pastor. I would say like, oh, I'm going to an AA meeting or I'm going to visit my cousins or I'd make up lies. And I, to me, that was indicative, indicative of something that something's not right. You know, at that time I'm like 32, 33. I'm like, I'm a grown man. It's a sober, a priest, and I'm lying to people that I care about, you know? So it started off with like really intermittent use of grinder. And I would do the thing where I would, I would hook up. I would be really nervous. And then I would be like, never again. And then sure enough, you know, I would go two, three months without it. And then it would come back around, you know? Um, and yeah, just shame. No, no sense of a relationship, no sense of reciprocity, no sense of self um, integration or self knowledge, just always shame, a dark, quick situation like sexual gratification and then move on. Needless to say, that didn't help anything. I mean, it helped my sexual curiosity and that's about it. I guess it got, it got more frequent and it got, and I got more, um, I got less concerned about the, the parameters. And I just, I start at one point I was like, well, if I'm going to do New York, I might as well be fine with Jersey city or Newark or somewhere that's not my neighborhood. And, you know, my, some of my close friends were like, Hey, this, you know, we're here to support you and love you, but like, this is unsustainable. Like this is going to either, you're going to get hurt or, or like eventually people are going to find out like, this isn't good for you, you know, not in a judgmental way, but like, we love you way. And I started realizing, yeah, this is definitely not serving me right now at all. And, uh, and then I think it just got to a point. I, I it was summer of 2019. I went away with my family and we had a nice family vacation and, um, I came back from the vacation. I went to this mission trip thing and I was by myself and I, I coming back from the mission trip. I know this is a little silly, but it's the truth. I was like, I was way out in Pennsylvania. I said, Oh, maybe I can get on grinder because I'm way out in the middle of nowhere. And I realized that on the mission trip, the, the, the liturgical coordinators asked me to bring a processional crucifix. And I looked at my car and I realized I had like a seven foot crucifix in my car. And I just laughed and I said, you know, maybe this isn't the ideal situation to, uh, to have a like meet someone on grinder with a big crucifix in my car. And uh, I was able to chuckle at it and just say that was August of 19. And I was like, I said, I I think this is not working, you know? Mm, And um, you know, I, I think there was some critique and some, you know, one of my friends had mentioned, this doesn't appear to be an issue about being gay. This appears to be an issue of, um, of of more of addiction or like addictive behavior. And I considered that for a while. And I said, maybe let me focus on that. And, um, while I do think there are some addictive qualities and patterns to the use of Grinder and other apps, for me, I really felt like it was situational, you know, because since then I've been able to to distance myself from a lot of those addictive patterns. Um, I think like anyone with Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat, there are moments where I'm glued to my phone or I'm checking my phone at the stoplight or, oh, let me see if someone likes me on Bumble or Tinder, or, you know, and it's not to say that I've never used Grinder since leaving. That's not true. But at the same time, I really, I don't notice those desperate addictive patterns since I've left. I'm able to do so in a more integrated manner, which I would use anything like Instagram or, or other social media apps. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the, the narrative that you share of, you know, I would get on the app, I, I would think, okay, well, just this time, and then I'll get out of my system, I'll be done with it. And then you do it and you feel shame, but then you're just like done with it and you just try not to think about it. Um, or, you know, you go to confession and, and then it's done, right? 
Um, you know, I think I, I think that is an experience that a, a lot of Catholics have, yes. um, gay or straight, when it comes to their sexuality and trying to deal with it, right? There's this tendency to want to say, okay, well, I have all these desires. I have no idea what to do with it. So let's just like get it over with this once, go to confession, and then I don't need to think about it anymore. Yes. And so it, it leads to this like huge bifurcation from certain areas of your life where they're a part of you, but you can't deal with them or integrate them. And then you over-spiritualize them, which helps you not deal with it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a reason for that. I mean, I think the theology also contributes to that because the theology says sins of the flesh, like sexual acting out or those types of things are less severe than sins of the pride or, or intellect or the ego. Right. And so in other words, it's better that you go get, I mean, this is their logic. It's better that you hook up with a stranger, feel guilty about it, go to confession and say sorry, than have a monogamous relationship with a man. Yeah. And well, actually, I've told the, you this, right? Like, we've talked about this. Yeah. We, I mean, this is what we were taught. So I remember one of my friends saying this was one of the final, there was a few final things, uh, you know, me realizing this wasn't working. But I remember one of the things that I was like, yeah, I need to get out of this institution. Like, I need to get out of this mindset was a dear friend. Who said, you know, I supported you along the way. I really did. But now that you're living the out and gay lifestyle, this is after I had left, but I was still kind of teetering. He goes, I can no longer endorse that. I can't. And I said, well, that's interesting because you were, you were with me. You Like you seemed to be okay when I was like, you weren't okay with it, but like you were managing when I was acting out. And he goes, yeah, because those are sins of the flesh. You could just go to confession, but these are sins of the intellect because knowingly you're making this decision and it's not a momentary slip. It's a, it's a sustained decision. And I said, so let me play this out. Do you think it's better that I go like, what's, what's worse going to New York city and getting a prostitute and then confessing or having a monogamous same sex relationship. And he, I mean, he's an educated smart guy. And he said, this, the latter, the latter is a bigger issue because it's a sin of the intellect. And internally I re- and I said, okay, that's interesting. Internally I said, I am done with this world forever. Like I can't, I cannot be a part of that. Yeah. I mean, what he's saying and what a lot of Catholics say implicitly is it's my preference that you be a priest on the abs, right? If I had my way, you would still be in the priesthood and I would rather you be in the priesthood and secretly hooking up. Right. And then the more noble version of that, I had at least five priests and or hyper-religious people say, wouldn't it be better for you just to have what we would call like a friends with benefits, like another gay priest Mm -hmm. who's like in the closet too. And you can too, can just have like a thing. And I just was like, that doesn't seem like the answer any either. Like, (laughs) um, and they're like, well, that's better than hooking up. I do agree that that would be better. But I'm like, that's not, I just, I want to be honest and open and with integrity. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to do that. And again, no judgment for people who have found that to be their way. I don't, it's not my business to, yeah. But yeah, but that life is so reliant upon deception of people yes. who are vulnerable before you. Yes. Right. And people yeah. who rely on you. Um, and, and, and yet, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. It's just so when I think about like your story and these struggles and the apps and, and you kind of like lay out the narrative and you lay out the formation, I just think, of course, these are the things that you did. Yeah. Of course, this is the direction. Of course, you're on the apps. Because this is what we're driving you to do. Right. right. Yes. Yes. And when when I would encounter people who weren't in the narrative, who happened to be in the church, but weren't in this narrative that it was the reparative therapy and all those things, 
they were just so much more sober about it. Like, so I remember there was this one seminary and he had been married to a woman and she died. She, his wife was a deceased and he joined the seminary, very integrated. I remember one night I went to a gay bar in New York city and I, I was really struggling um, that weekend with, with this tension. And he saw me, he's like, how was your, how was your, he was like, Oh, how was your weekend or whatever? And I was like, I'm going to take a risk. And I was going to play it off as a joke. I said, oh, I went to a gay bar last night in New York City. It was pretty interesting. He goes, oh, that's cool. What was going on there? And I said, oh, my friend was visiting in town, and he had never been. And I told him I would take him. He's like, that's cool. He he acted as if I said I went to yoga or biking. And I was like, because this guy is not in the, that normal narrative. He's a straight man who had a wife. And he was like, cool. Sounds fun. He's like, I thought you didn't drink. I said, no, no, I didn't. I just had a Coke. He was like, cool. That sounds fun. He's like, next time, let me know. Maybe I'll join. You know, like, so low drama, right? And I remember because he was not in that narrative, and because he was straight, because he was straight, it was not a it was not a threat to him. Yeah, yeah, and and, and probably for him, you know, going to a gay bar doesn't mean anything about you know what you're doing physically or sexually. You know, it's right. you're going to a place, um, yep. and and we can talk about it. We can be open about it. We can be chill about it. And we can get drinks and leave and we can all see each other doing right. that. And that's right. okay. And it's safe. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember now that I'm out and open in Salt Lake City, I remember a bunch of my friends, most of them were straight. We were going to a concert and one of them was like, Hey, let's go all meet for pool and drinks and food at this gay bar before there was a bunch of people. No one even mentioned the fact that it was a gay bar. It was just friends hanging out. And it was, it was more of like a normal integrated way than some, you know, and I, I did reach a, a stage and seminary and my first year of priesthood where I was like, oh, maybe I could go to gay bars and meet people. And I do remember my therapist. He was like, you do whatever you want to do. Uh, but he's like, do you think you're the first? <laughs> he had a great life. He goes, let me just ask you. He goes, we're 20 minutes from New York City. Greenwich Village is like the gay, is like a gay haven. He's like, do you think you're the only Newark priest who has thought about this? And I started laughing. He goes, if you're, if you go, just be expected. You'll probably see a lot of other priests there. Hmm. And, and potentially seminarians he's like it's it's that's common so you know he not in a judgmental way but i just thought it was funny i was like yeah i guess i'm not the first <laughs> the yeah. first uh the one to consider this yeah yeah i don't know that's it just it seems so hard and horrifying to me i mean i imagine you know what if i would have gone to seminary and I, i've struggled a lot with with integration in various areas of my life and and I just, it seems to me that just the incentives to live this life of secrecy and duplicity are just so high in, in the structures of the church. Mm -hmm. yeah. So there's a document, I think it's called the Redatio. I forget the Latin word, but it's the uh, document from the Vatican, from the congregation of, of education and, and seminary mm -hmm. formation, I believe. I would need to be fact-checked on what congregation. Um, and it says those men presenting with deep-seated homosexual tendencies should not be admitted to holy orders. Oh, yeah. So yeah. in the seminary, you have a document that says no gays. And then 60 to 70 percent of the guys in there are gay. It, it You can't have a successful program that way. It just. It's just not. It's just yeah. not sustainable because either people are lying about it or they feel disintegrated about it or something. Something is not something's not going to work with that. Yeah. Well, and so much of it also just comes down to semantics too, right? right. So, you know, so it's the, the line is, yeah, deep-seated homosexual tendencies. But then in your mind as a young seminarian, you're like, well, I'm not flamboyant. I like sports. So this is just exactly. like, 
So this is actually just the pathology thing. Like everyone else told me that it was, and I can cure it. So I don't fall within that category, yep. right? Yep. Oh, no, I, I said that exact thing. I said, mine is not deep-seated. Because I had a crush on a girl like in seventh grade. And I was like, I would use that. I'd be like, see, I, I liked a girl in seventh grade. Therefore, mine is not deep-seated. Meanwhile, that crush lasted like a week. And then it was all crushes on guys from then forward. Yeah. But that, I mean, was, that was my justification. It's almost like it's like this puzzle and you're given pieces at various points in your life. And one piece is this narrative about it's a pathology. Another piece is like, oh, deep-seated tendencies not allowed. Another piece is, you know, you have this wound. And another piece is, oh, we'll spiritualize everything. And then when you finally put the pieces together and you're in your first year of the priesthood, it's, I live this life as a priest where I'm this revered priest I'm secretly hooking up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. And it's, it's years into your priesthood before you finally see the puzzle for what it is, even though you've been given these pieces that somehow fit perfectly together. Yeah, exactly. And then when I left the first, I've left, I left twice once to do a temporary leave of absence and then when I left the first time, it was, it was almost seen as romantic or a lot of people were like, good for you, figure it out. You know, very much a journey, very much pilgrimage mentality, very much like we support you. And then the second time it was certainly like, you're going to do this to us after how we've been so good to you and you're still going to leave this soon. I mean, I when I came back the second time, I knew maybe we could do a timeline on that, but I, I just knew I was like, this is not working. That, this is not working. That That might be a separate conversation, but... Um, yeah, it's, it, it's too, it's the, the, the puzzle that you just mentioned, it's a whole web and it, it's, it's really hard to, to get out of once I, like once I tasted the freedom of living out, I was like, I can't go back in. I can't go back in. Yeah. And I did, yeah. I did for four months and I, I tried to make it work, but it just, it didn't work. Yeah. 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 And I don't know. I mean, you know, I do, I think about, you know, we started out with, with the kind of, confusion or sadness experienced by by people who you know really do want to hold on to this a certain image of the faith and a certain image of the priesthood and and there's a part of me that's like look you got to reckon with reality or this is going to be the reality forever yes um and then there's another part of me that thinks you know yeah like i do there is something beautiful about the ideals that they they want to hold on to in this idealistic way in which they see the church and the priesthood and um you know and, and disillusionment is is painful and i mean just like the clergy abuse crisis was was painful but also the only way to start working through it is to enter into that pain and see the reality for what it is so i don't know i mean what what do you hope for for those people as they've had to kind of process all of this or as they may be hearing a lot of this for the for the first time listening to this you mean the people that i knew personally or just the people in that same yeah, or the people in your community who you yeah. know yeah want want to hold on to catholicism and yeah and their faith and yeah yeah i mean i think I think realizing like it, it's okay. Like it's okay that things are a little different. It's okay that things shift. I mean, I think the pandemic taught us that, that there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of getting used to new normals, but in the same way, like it's okay. Like if you love your priest and he's closeted gay and then he decides to come out, it's okay to still love him, you know? And um, 
it's very interesting to me that a lot of the people in my parish, when I came out publicly, thanked me. I got messages on Instagram from parents thanking me on behalf of their kids. Like, thank you, because if our kids are ever gay or whatever, want to come out, they know that they have a mentor who did it for them. And yet it was it was the clergy who were uncomfortable with it. You know, the people were the people were mostly fine with it, to be honest with you. Most of the people in my church were like, we're disappointed. Like we we miss you. But we're if you're happy, we're happy. We, we just miss you. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like what my family does. My parents are like, I can't wait to see you. It's not it's not a judgment on whether I've left or not. They just miss me. But it was the clergy who were like, you're turning your back. You're abandoning your flock. That one hurt really bad. You're abandoning your flock, you know? Yeah. Um, but I just, I wish more priests could be open and honest. And I mean, one of the things that I was taught that if you come out as an active priest, you're being selfish because you're making everything about you. That was a big narrative that I learned. So it's about the gospel. It's not about you. That's what we were taught. So if you if you come out, especially in church, like at the announcements, you're making it all about you. And I remember I believe that. And I remember there were some priests who came out publicly and I was like, oh, they're so selfish early on. And I just, I wish that people could be themselves a little bit more. And I wish, I wish everyone just took the, um, took it down a notch a little bit. And it's like, it's okay. Like, let's just talk to one another. Let's pray with one another. Let's just be with one another. Because I think the political schism in our country is reflected in the church too, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, another side of this is, you know, thinking about the you as someone who struggled with this double life as a, as a priest, um, you know, there are many priests today who are in that position, you know, what would you say now to that younger you or to, to priests who are in that position today? Oh, that's a really good question. So based on my experience, and then also based on people that I work with in mental health, but also mentors, that it's never too late. Number one, and number two, it's 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 hard, but it's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it because the, so in in the church, if if you're a priest or a leader, it's it's your vocation, it's your job, it's your community, it's everything, and that's really hard to lose all that. Um, and it's okay. There's like there there are fresh starts. Like I, I love my new home here in Salt Lake City. I love my community. I love my job. I work in a mental health, but like a pediatric psychiatric hospital. I love it. I love my coworkers. Um, there's a lot of lies that the church tells about society that the liberal agenda doesn't want spirituality. That's bullshit. I bring spirituality into my work all the time. They say that no one will ever understand and it's not respected. That's bullshit. That my boss the other day got me involved in a project. She's like, your pastoral leadership in the past is going to like enable you to get involved in this. I mean, it is well-respected and well-revered. And um, I guess my, my like if I, <laughs> to quote St. Julian of Norwich, it, it's it's okay. It's it's okay. It's gonna be okay, and all will be well, and all things will be well. She said. Mm -hmm. That's I just finished reading her. I'm drawn to the mystics these days in my in my reading because I don't like any of the moral theology currently. Um, but it's okay, you know. Um, God is bigger. God is bigger than the sacramental life of the church, although God exists in a, in a very particular way there. Um, right before I left for the final time, I was in New York, and I went to a I walked into a church, and I knelt down. And I was crying and I knew it was time. And I just felt the Lord say, what do you want? And I said, please, please let me go. I want to go. And I just felt in the depth of my heart, you can go. And I said, but I don't want to leave you. And I heard, you're not, you're not going to leave me. It's You can go, you can go. And I just was like, thank you. Thank you. You can go, yeah. you know? Um, and it's not, I'm not walking away from him, you know, but it's really scary. It's scary to lose your whole community. Um, 
I had some some really close friends, people I would consider in some of my best friends. Some like like refused to to speak to me. Like like yeah, like there there are some people who just discontinued contact altogether. That hurts so bad. Yeah. And what I would want to tell them is like I'm still me. I'm still me. Like, yeah. and that's okay. You don't have to agree with my lifestyle. That's okay. I, I had some people who were like, I love you and I miss you. And I don't know what to think about it, but they still call me. Yeah. And that, that's, that's like, that's okay. You don't have to agree with everything. I, I don't need you to affirm every part of my life, but yeah, the people who, who discontinued speaking with me, that was, that hurt really bad. That hurt really bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think about, you know, this, this narrative of being a priest where it's, you know, you're laying down your whole life um, for the sake of this mission and this vocation. Um, and then, in the priesthood, these things become your entire, the priesthood becomes your entire life, your yes. community, your work, your vocation, your profession, I, yep. the way that people identify you, the way that you dress. Um, and then for you to kind of have to go through this second period of asking, do I lay down my entire life so that at the very least I can be honest before others and before myself and before God? Right. Um, just that little thing and, and a total laying down of one's entire life. And, and in some ways, you know, it, it feels like, yeah, a, a good formation will lead you to the ability to lay down your life again. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And I, I mean, I bring my priesthood into the, my work, you know, I work with some really sick people and I pray for them. I try to intercede. I, I, I do what the priesthood is designed to do. I mean, to, as a mediator, Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man, right? Like I try to use the, the gift of mediating. I pray for them on behalf of them, right? This goes back to all the way back to Moses interceding for his people. And um, I try to treat them like Christ. I mean, I bring my spirituality into um, into into my daily work, you know? And so I, I, I do still see the, the priesthood in my prayer life very much permeating my life. Um, you know, I one of the things that some of my mentors told me when I first left is I wasn't dead set on the fact that I had to be leave forever. Like I was, it was a figuring it out type of phase. And I remember thinking, you know, I COVID was also happening. So my leave of absence was simultaneous with, with right. I left right before the COVID pandemic. So a lot of that was, you know, a bridge because of all the societal things happening. So, um, when that was over, I, you know, I had asked Cardinal Tobin for an extension. So I, I took a, a, about a year and a half leave, but my goal was really to return to ministry. And, um, I, I was not at peace with staying out here. And some of the, my friends that I made out here in Salt Lake city, when I was going back to the church, they're like, how can you go back to this institution? You know, you, they don't accept you. And I said, I have to go back. I have to do it. Like, and they were actually taking bets on how long that would last. <laughs> they didn't tell me that until later, but I said, I have to do this. Like, I feel called because it, this was such a big commitment. And I did. In August of 21, I returned to New Jersey and I, I returned and I gave it my all. And within four months, I had chest pain. I had pa uh, trigger warning. I had passive suicidal ideations. I had hopelessness, um, headaches. I couldn't sleep again. And I just was like, there's no way I can do this. I mean, now that I'm a mental health professional, I know these signs. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't. And, um, and, you know, I told Cardinal Tobin, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I, I can't, I can't do this. So he was not thrilled. He was not thrilled. Um, and that's okay. He's entitled to have his opinions and his emotions. Um, my family was devastated more so because they were going to miss me, but, um, I, it was hard. It was very tearful. It was, it was hard. And I just, I was like, this is what I need to do, you know? So, yeah. 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 Just, just a few more questions. I, I, I think yeah. as we kind of close out, 
Um, you know, one is, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, like how you feel and relate to a lot of these things. And, and, and I think that for a lot of people, this may be, um, you know, hearing for the first time, a lot of many parts of your story, um, you know, is there, is there anything that really like sticks out to you looking back that you feel like sorrow for or want to express sorrow for? Mm. That's a good question. Yeah, I think there's there's a difference between I'm sorry for a specific thing or a wrongdoing that I've done, and I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> sure. I think the majority yeah. of my sorrow is I'm sorry you feel that way. Like, I'm really sorry that this was so hard for you. I'm really sorry you feel it. I mean, I it says in scripture, there was weeping, wailing, and grinding of teeth. You know, that scripture. and. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was literally weeping and wailing at the steps of my church. People, I remember an old lady grabbing my hand, weep, wailing. Please don't go. Please don't go. Um, the pastor that I mentioned, Monsignor Bob Slipe, who he couldn't look at me in the eyes for like a month as I was making preparation. He would look down. He he later apologized. He said, this is so hard. Um, I had some best friends like refuse to speak to me. And and I, I'm sorry to you. I'm sorry that it was so it was so hard. I'm sorry that it was so hard. Um, but as far as, you know, I, I'm, I don't think I'm sorry for any of my, um, specific actions or decisions. I don't regret it. I really, really don't. And I'm sorry to my family that I'm not closer. I, I just, I'm, I, I found a, a home out here, you know? Um, but yeah. And, I, and, um, um, maybe I'll share a resentment too. I'll share a resentment yeah. that one of the most depressed and neurotics like the most depressed and, and neurotic and anxious I've ever felt was when I was receiving communion daily confession every other week and reading spiritual reading. And I'm resentful at the church um, for leading me astray in that area. I, mm-hmm. I am, you know, in that one particular area, I don't hate the church. I love the church. I still go to mass, uh, not every Sunday, but most Sundays or a lot of Sundays. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm upset that they promised everything and yeah, that they were not that the, the, the lumen gentium, the light to the nations who is our Lord Jesus in, in his church with They were not able to provide what they needed, even though they promised they would. And, and that hurts really bad. And that hurts really bad. And that's okay. Cause the Lord is providing in other ways. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. When, when I, one of the themes has kind of come up um, when I've had, these kinds of conversations is this like sense of both like victimhood and then also a, a concern and, and a fear and a sorrow around um, like being the victimizer as well. Cause I imagine, yeah. you know, if you would have stayed part of this, you know, after a certain point, you have to pass on yourself as a leader in the church, these expectations of, of secrecy and create and, continuing to cultivate the conditions for duplicity and, yeah. and disintegration. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. And actually it does. I, w- I think I, might, I was thinking of a different aspect, but you know, since you mentioned that, I think in those times of acting out my dear friends who like were with me in that. And if there was anyone in those situations where I was selfish or duplicitous towards that's, that's who I would ask for forgiveness from. Mm, yeah. And I would say, I was sorry if I hurt you in those areas and I'm like, I was wrong for for those those months and those years when I was doing that and I'm sorry and and I was wrong for yeah and for the people that loved me that was watching that were watching me hurt like that's hard that's really hard you know yeah um 
Yeah. 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 I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I've certainly had to struggle with, with things so that myself and um, yeah. And, and many others have as well, obviously. Um, so yeah, kind of on, um, on a, a slightly different note, um, you know, what would you yeah. hope for the church? So it's interesting. I, I don't consider myself to be a real radical reformer. Like I don't think Pope Francis should reverse gay theology tomorrow. I really do. Cause I think that would just splinter the church and then it'd be too. Um, I hope a, like a gentle conversation can happen. I hope priests and leaders are allowed to come out and be themselves. And I hope things change slowly enough where the people can integrate it. Like, for example, that document, I hope they change the document and say, no matter whether you're gay or straight, the important part about embracing celibacy is an overall sexual integration. And those people coming to ordination should present, um, you know, should present with, with the resources they need to be integrated or something like that. Um, I do hope that the Catholic Church stops putting all their trust in pseudoscience. I do hope people like Phil Mango and Dr. Bob Schutz and a lot of people who mean really well um, are held accountable. And I don't mean like they, they have to stop their doing what they're doing. I just, I just, I hope there's accountability in those spheres because um, that can be really dangerous. I mean, people like Mike Schmitz and Chris West and all these guys that are influencers, I think they're, they do terrific stuff in a lot of ways. I, I admire them. I'm not here to critique them. I just hope there's accountability. You know, there's a lot of people listening to what they, they say. And I just, I hope there, I hope there's accountability and professional oversight. And I hope the church helps realize those, those, they are many, there are some voices and they have a lot of beautiful things to say, but they're not the soul. I mean, to me, it was like the fifth gospel, according to Chris West and the fifth gospel, according to <laughs> Jason Everett and the fifth gospel, according to Joseph Ratzinger, you know? Yeah. And I hope those people, those people can still do awesome work. And I, I admire them, but I hope there's a little bit of like, Hey, it's the, the sexual morality here is not, is not everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope, I hope uh, queer um, youth, especially stop um, killing themselves. And stop dying by suicide. And I hope there's a revolution in our country where especially queer youth can feel safe. Um, that's my population that I work with. I work with a lot of mentally, like with, with teenagers who experience mental illness. And it's just such a tragedy that that death by suicide is so prevalent. And I just, I really pray and hope that that changes. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, what a... What a change to your life, right? To struggle yeah. so deeply yourself and to have to hide this part of yourself. And and what it's become for you is you're you're serving youth as they're working through these questions and and working through yeah. finding like integration and hope in their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing, you know, that if anyone happens to hear this and, and they feel the need and they feel alone or isolated, um, I mean, I'm part of a small community of people in a similar <laughs> You are too, obviously, right, Chris? Um, <laughs> like, there's a small community. It's casual. It's not an organized community of people who just support each other. Like, if you need help, reach out. We're across the. There's a few of us across the country, and we try to hang out and gather and pray and worship and and be together. So, if you're hearing this and it's and it's ringing a bell for you, reach out, reach out. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I guess kind of my like final question for you is, um, you know, again thinking about priests who 
who might be afraid and um, don't know what to do and maybe living double lives or just struggling with integration. And, and they're, they're afraid to maybe make a change or raise this question of, you know, should I pursue a life as, aside from the priesthood? Um, you know, how are you doing now? <laughs> yeah. You know what? I re- I remember in seminary there, it was, the people who left were always kind of not necessarily villainized, but they were <laughs> seen as like poor souls and, oh, they're married four times and things aren't working mm-hmm. out for them. So I'm thriving. I think um, I have a job that I love that pays well or well enough. Um, I have my own apartment in Salt Lake City. I have a big group of friends. I, uh, on the weekends, I get to ski and hike and see shows and do fun things. I'm healthy. I sleep well. Um, I feel like I serve and I give back. I'm involved in, I worship. I'm involved in um, Christian and Catholic social groups. I'm still sober. I'm in AA. I'm, I feel like I'm thriving. Yeah. So, um, it, of course it's scary. Of course it's scary. But um, if I could turn, can I turn my jersey on for a second? Like, be, knock it off and do it. Be a big boy. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, of course it's it's always scary to move away, but it's, it's scary to do new things. It's scary. It's hard, but you can do, you can do hard things. And my advice for people, if they feel really um, trapped or is to, to trust one or two people. And you can also take a leap of absence that's six months just to taste it. You don't know, you know, you don't have to become laicized tomorrow, but I think, I think there's a way to do it where it respects your vows and respects your celibacy and, um, and to trust them, to be able to trust someone who's done it before you. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting is the church didn't really give any mentorship in leaving. It was very just keep in touch with the vicar general. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I sent Cardinal Tobin the letter in June, it is that was one year ago. I still have not heard back. I have not heard anything from them. Um, so it's kind of like we're support you. We want you back. But once you're out, it's like out of sight, out of mind, you know. So um, I kind of had to find my own new spiritual support and own mentorship out here. And that's OK. That's OK. Yeah. 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 You're not, that, that is a very common experience of, of um, people who leave the priesthood of once you're out, you'll never hear from us again, um, which is really, yeah. it's sad and it's painful. And, and as, as a church, I just think if what we really want is honesty and, um, and, and integration and for the things that have been hidden to be able to come to the light, we need to create the conditions where that can happen. Um, and so right. I really, I appreciate you sharing and i I think that's a part of it it's that's the beginning that's people right people don't do that and i I hope that this this can help with people who are who are seeking honesty yeah and and kind of like a resolution type of comment that i was hoping to to share is it just kind of came to me um i think i think it's a like i feel old enough in my life and experienced enough i'm 38 not to realize that any one quick fix makes life perfect Mm. life is hard for everyone yeah like, of course I have bad days. Of course I, of course I doubt myself. Of course I have guilt. Um, of course I get stressed out at work, you know? So there are, um, there are certain days, of course, where I'm like, oh, was this a mistake? So by, by making these big changes, I don't live in a fantasy world where everything is perfect, but I do live in a world where my struggles become a little bit just more regular. <laughs> oh, I'm, I work, I, it was a really busy week at work, right? Or I'm a little bit lonely on the holiday. All my friends are gone and I wish I could see family, but that's life. That's normal. For me, the struggles in the celibate priesthood were, were just be a little bit beyond the normal where I, I couldn't have a sense of, of stability and a sense of self there. And so 
life isn't perfect. I still have to put up with things. I still have to to do all the hard things in life. But I do. I, I'm I'm reluctant to use the the rhetoric of like the early retreat days when people were like, "Ever since I found Jesus, my life is perfect." I don't want to do that, but I do feel a consens- consistent sense of peace and happiness in, in this life mm-hmm. that I feel like the Lord has invited me. On. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and if I you're hear. hearing this and you know me, give me a call. I, give me a call. Text me. I would love it. Yeah. I heard a story of people being like, "Oh, we need to pray for Danny," and you know, I'm like, "You could, I would love the prayer. You could also give me a call. I have the same number." <laughs> And I, I've reached out to people as well. I've reached out. Yeah, that's the yeah. Catholic gossip. We need to pray for him. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've lost friends, but you've made some yeah. too. You know, we've been Definitely. able to become I mean, friends through this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, sometimes part of life is just moving on, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you just move on. You move states, right? People get married and have kids and move across the country. It's just normal. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's just normal. Yeah, I think that's a yeah. that's a good place to end. <laughs> it is it is that's yeah. my motto i just want yeah. to be normal <laughs> yeah there's obviously so much more to danny's story so much more to be said about what this means for the life of the church i'm really grateful for danny's openness and vulnerability i hope this is the beginning of some very important and very necessary conversations on homosexuality the priesthood and the catholic church generally like danny I hope that the Catholic Church can be the Lumen Gentium, the light to the nations. But in order to be this, we first need to shine light on ourselves. We can't be a light if we insist on hiding in darkness. Thanks for listening.